episode 348, Your Burning Questions About Payviders Answered. Today, I speak with Jeb Dunkelberger. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The discussion to follow is probably a 400-level class in payviders. If I just said the word payvider and you're scratching your head wondering where you may have heard that term before, this show is probably not the best place for you to start. I'd go back and get some context by listening first to the episodes with Steve Blumberg from GuideWell, episode 304, and or the one with John Moore from Chillmark. That's episode 172. And for a really retrospective look back, check out the one episode with Dr. Chris Smith from Northwell from back when they were still trying to become an insurance carrier. It's like a time capsule into their ambitions. Okay, if you're still with me today, I'm looking forward to digging in to payviders with Jeb Dunkelberger, who is the CEO of Sutter Health Aetna. Sutter Health Aetna is the payvider joint venture between, you guessed it, Sutter Health and Aetna. Not only is Jeb one who would obviously know a whole lot about payviders and how they operate given his role, but he's also super articulate and thoughtful in terms of the potential impacts that this type of entity can have on patients in the surrounding healthcare ecosystem. I started to get really curious about payviders and what they're up to because the term keeps coming up in conversations, number one. And the more it came up, the more it started to become really obvious that payvider is one of those terms that everybody tosses around and may or may not define it the same way. Jeb refers to a payvider as an entity that delivers care, but also writes insurance products and takes risk for them, not just taking capitated payments or doing direct contracting while it's the employer who actually takes the risk. This is the definition of payvider that we explore today. Two kinds of interesting points that Jeb makes, which I'll just underscore here. One is, in air quotes, demand destruction. I like the idea of the term because it brings a really obvious point into stark focus. Bottom line, taking on risk or value-based programs is easier if you are a smaller percentage of the healthcare spend. The bigger a percentage of the healthcare spend that gets cha-chinged into your cash register, the more you destroy your own demand by creating value-based programs that minimize downstream costs. Those downstream costs are your revenue after all. Value-based care is all about demand destruction at its core. In the last question of this interview, so this is the second thing I'm underscoring here, I ask Jeb if he thinks payviders will ultimately lower healthcare costs. And he comes back with a reframe of my question. He says, if we take costs out of the system, will hospitals close? And if the hospitals close, then people get laid off. Fair point, since in many places, the health system is one of the biggest employers in town, if not the biggest, and also a political tour de force. So there's more nuances here, but you'll have to either get to or skip to almost the end of the episode to hear them. Jeb Dunkelberger began his career as a health economist and consultant. He became the CEO of Sutter Health Aetna to focus on alternative reimbursement models and value-based care. Jeb also wrote a book called Rich and Dying, link in the show notes. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Jeb Dunkelberger, welcome to Relentless Health Value. 
Thanks so much for having me. So Sutter Health Aetna, that's a JV between Sutter Health System and Aetna, which is obviously a large insurance carrier. Yeah, the joint venture was started a few years ago. It encapsulates obviously the 24 hospitals that are Sutter Health and all of the affiliates of that. But we also have Stanford as well as Brown and Poland included in our performance network. All in all, you have about 12,100 providers and something like over 36 hospitals included in our performance network, which focuses in Palo Alto and then stretches all the way up into Sacramento. So when you say performance network, you mean those 12,000 providers are all part of a, in quotes, narrow network, although with 12,000 providers, I'm not sure how narrow it is. But Yeah, performance is just the invoke term for narrow, but absolutely. Yeah. Ah, I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so you would consider that entity a payvider then? This is what we mean by payvider. That's some kind of JV between a, a payer and a provider, or is there a broader definition? I think the broader definition would be that there is a new co entity that was created, which Aetna CVS owns 50% of, and Sutter Health owns 50% of. And that new co entity has a licensure with the California Department of Insurance, and they are looking to write insurance products on that license. So unlike ACOs or CINs or IDN, you want to call them, where they have some sort of delegated arrangement or value-based arrangement, this one, you actually are responsible for everything from open enrollment and actually writing the business, think about pricing and underwriting, all the way through to the actual clinical interventions. So you would not consider, like, for example, United Healthcare has, you know, bought a ton of provider organizations and they are creating narrow networks with those provider organizations. You recently, Humana did something similar. Are they payviders by your definition? They could be if they're inviting the provider organization into a new co-entity where together they are making decisions on things like the underwriting risk. But what I've seen from my perspective is that commonly is not in place. What I see is these large payer organizations are currently writing the business, they're administering the health plan, and then that provider might have some sort of financial upside based upon how the product does from a medical loss ratio or a quality perspective. But it's not actually owned or written by the provider organization. So it's a little bit of an arm's length relationship. So then by your definition, how common are payviders? Like, are there some big ones across the country? Who are they? It's definitely a blossoming area, and it's very confusing because the nomenclature gets bundled together and there's a lot of gray space. The the largest ones that everyone's going to think of are Kaiser Permanente, Intermountain with their select uh, health plan, or they'll think about Highmark, the blue, actually owns Allegheny Health Network. What about the new one at Northwell? I think it's called Northwell Direct, where they are attempting to work with self-insured employers. Is that another flavor of what we're talking about here? Great question. One of the biggest differences here is that within the payvider space, I always like to highlight the fact that we have fully insured products, right? So not just the self-funding, but also the fully insured side. So we are writing direct risk. Within the Northwell, as I understand that, it's fully functioning on a self-funded basis. And so I think that direct contracting, that is a massive area that's continuing to get a lot of headline time, a lot of spotlight, uh, and is a growing area of interest. 
And the reason why I think that's going to grow even more is because I think self-funding is now dropping down from the big nationals and massive organizations to now we're seeing it in the mid-cap and even small business environment. So as self-funding continues, I think organizations like Northwell will continue. Northwell is not writing direct business on a fully insured basis but they could be assisting in the administration. I do not know if they have you know, a TPA involved or if they're allowing brokers to bring their own TPA. Okay, so if it's a high self-insured employer's BYO TPA <laughs> in, in those models, then it's actually not by your definition a payvider. I think the delineation sits on who the payer is. So if it's self-funded, the payer technically is, where if it's, if it's fully insured, the payer is the insurance company. So on that fully insured side, when you say pay provider, in my mind, again, my very specific definition is that you then have a fully insured product because you are acting as the payer. You're not working with a employer who's self-funded who technically is the payer. Okay, so there is a requirement to have a fully insured product because you need an insurance license in, in your view to be considered a, a pay provider. If you're working with self-insured employers, then that kind of doesn't count. We're a mile deep now in the detail of this, but I think that level of granulation is where you begin to see the two entities separate. As I'm understanding the sort of tiers of risk maybe or the ways to take risk, one is that you've got a fully insured product, which I'm assuming you're selling on the exchanges or maybe you're going through brokers. Like how does that, how does the fully insured product function? Yeah, so Aetna has five joint ventures across the United States, so in Texas, Arizona, DC, Minnesota, and then obviously the one I work with in California. We, Sutter Health Aetna, are not in the exchange business. So we are focused predominantly on mid-market and public and labor space. You think about what's a good fit I think a good fit for these provider organizations are employers that are predominantly locally based because then that performance network really speaks to that. There's not a ton of network disruption because that local provider network can administer 99 for the access that you need versus you start getting into the large national accounts. That doesn't always work that way. So obviously you can work your way into that, but those national accounts are typically looking for something that is spread across the United States. Fortunately, with our partnership with Aetna, we have a number of national accounts who in a local basis, when they're looking in the San Francisco region, they like to work with us because they know that from that local perspective, we have it covered. Uh, but it ties back into a national product that is administered by Aetna. Brokers then have your product in their bag, as you said, it, be it a, a local employer that only has one office locally or some kind of national employer that has Aetna writ large. But then it, for their San Francisco office, they use Sutter Health Aetna. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, it's all about semantics here, but essentially at that local level, there is a product derivative that includes us as the kind of preferred network. Now, I think it is, it's funny that you're breaking it apart this way because you think like, I remember when I was at Highmark in the state of Pennsylvania, there were over 10,000 product variations. So there's really no clean way of defining it, but there are ways to create networks and product offerings that speak to a national employer that's looking for a hyper-focused, performance-oriented, geo-specific offering. And that's what we're able to do with the performance network tying into a national carrier. We have some provider organization, traditionally provider organization that owns 50% of the JV. And then we've got the traditional health insurer 
that owns 50% of the JV. So I'm assuming that means that 50% of the profits get distributed to both parties as well as 50% of the potential risk. My next question is going to be about incentives. So I just want to make sure that I'm understanding the structure correct before we get into the why and the how. Yeah, I think I think at a high level, that's absolutely correct with the caveat that you know is coming, which is anytime a payer is going to partner with a large provider in one of their geographies, they don't want to see that provider go into a tailspin financially due to you know the performance of that product. And so there, I think it's also commonplace to see some protections built into that to ensure when you're dealing with an organization that has 20 or 30 or 50 or $100 billion in premium revenue, and you're talking about a provider organization that sees a fraction of that so you want to hold their feet to the fire from a value-based perspective, right? You want to have them feel the incentives or the disincentives, but you don't want to make it so terrible for them that it leaves them running for the door and not wanting to partner anymore. What would be the incentive for a provider then to sign up for this? It sounds like there's definitely the potential for risk. Going back to my days in, in value-based reimbursement at high, there's a number of providers who always are going to be excited about risk-based contracts. And those providers tend to be the ones that don't represent a large share of the total spend. So whenever we talk about primary care-centric value-based models, one of the reasons why it works so well is because most PCPs represent less than five cents on the dollar in terms of total spend. And so when you say, hey, you need to create shared savings, that PCP can attack a number of different revenue centers in order to bring down the total cost of care. But when you are a large provider entity, like a large health system, or you have a large market share within a region, you might represent 55 to 65, even higher, 75 cents on the dollar. In those situations, it's hard to make a traditional value-based reimbursement mechanism work because what it really means is that demand destruction that's gonna happen is gonna happen in your own brick and mortar. It's gonna happen inside your own facility. And so it's impossible to stay whole. So you have to look for additional dollars and where those are, are typically sitting within the payer organization. So now you're looking at the admin fees, the network access fees, the claim adjudication, and you have large provider organizations saying, we're gonna need to grow into those revenue verticals in order for us to stay whole or for us to start turning a little bit in evolving into this new state that we need to be, which is more value oriented. I think it's a matter of who you're dealing with on the provider side and why they arrive at the kind of decision to either move in and become a pay provider organization or potentially even just launch their own health plan altogether and not even partner with a large payer organization. What I'm understanding here, if you're a large health system and you already have a large share of the medical spend in a geography, then going into value-based care, when you're trying to control costs, you're cannibalizing your own (laughs) market share. Because if you've got PCPs who are trying to limit downstream spending, and as a provider, you're currently making a lot of money on that downstream spending, then by going into a a value-based arrangement that's trying to eliminate low-value care or high-price care downstream, you're basically cutting off your own profit center. Yeah, this is like where it always gets funny because you go and you, you look at all the big kind of talks and podium speakers and keynotes. It's just math. It's the amount of lives times the amount of utilization multiplied by your unit cost, right? That's really the key drivers of your revenue. 
And the minute that you have already capped out on the amount of lives, be it your share of the market has just gotten to a point where you grow any further, you'll be called a monopoly, or you get to a point where utilization is being asked to come down to a value-based mechanism, right? Those avoidable ED visits, maybe even just site of care is getting attacked. We want to see more to the outpatient setting or the unit cost is getting attacked, right? So you have local employers going, this is just too expensive. The minute any one of those three verticals is attacked, you're going to feel that wall against your back and you're going to say, okay, I got to go somewhere else. And what we didn't talk about was the revenue that's tied to a payer organization that becomes a growth area or headspace for some of these larger organizations that they are now moving into, I believe. From a provider standpoint, if they wind up saving money, they really have to get 50% of the insurance revenue to, as you put it, be whole. Like they actually can legitimately take part in those savings as opposed to getting a paltry percentage <laughs> that mm-hmm. some other entity has decided to reward them with. It's truly putting your money where your mouth is. If you think that you can deliver a clinical experience that then also ties into kind of the broader member experience, and you as a provider think that you can go the distance and deliver on all of that, then absolutely, you're 100% correct. And you you nailed it. Traditional value-based mechanisms do not keep large provider systems whole. The other caveat to throw in here, just to make this a little bit more interesting and complicated, is that in order to get the product to move, you got to think you're dealing with some large incumbents. Northern California, I got blue on blue competition with Anthem and Blue Shield of California. I got Kaiser Permanente's backyard. I got some of the largest brands in healthcare delivery also sitting here with Stanford, Brown and Toland, Hill Physicians. It is a bastion of clinical innovation. And so one of the things you have to do to get out of the gates is at least provide the unit cost savings for those brokers to even look at you and put you in front of those employers. So imagine that as well. So you have to get a little bit of a discount on your fee-for-service revenue in order to get that product to start to move, trusting that the premium is going to offset that discount long-term. The one thing that I would question here is that obviously there seems to be a lot of insurance level competition in that geography. One of the things that San Francisco is well known for (laughs) is the lack of provider competition. So you have some of the highest unit costs in the country right there going on. If everybody's fighting to try to get the premium dollars as low as possible, but at the same time, the provider, the underlying provider costs are quite high, does Sutter, and I don't necessarily want to make this about, you know, these specific entities, but it would seem like any provider that was involved in those organizations would wind up with a competitive advantage because all of the other insurance carriers would not, is going to have to contend with negotiating with that same entity. Yeah, you could look at it that way. But you could also look at it from the other side of it, which is there's a little bit of a halo effect, which I think you're getting to as well, which is, look, we're reaching the kind of cap space in Northern California in terms of how high you can actually make the price of healthcare. Employers are buckling right now. And I say that not speaking on behalf of Sutter Health Aetna, but just speaking on the fact that as you look at what's happened through COVID coming out of it, you have a disproportionate amount of people that are going on to government-funded lines of business. Those are lines of business that most providers historically cross-subsidized onto the commercial 
lines of business, which are the employers. So here an employer is in Northern California, they're already paying a Medicare tax. They've already gotten beat up during COVID due to a number of different reasons. And now they're paying two, three, four, five times the Medicare rate because they're essentially having to cross subsidize it again, not just the tax, but also now paying higher reimbursement. And so when I look at this, it's creating an incentive for cost optimization on the provider side. It's actually creating incentives for, for, for providers to bring their costs down. And that's what's going to create a lot of the margin within the health plan as well. So if you set a unit cost and you say, hey, you have to live off of this, the only way to survive is to either cross subsidize your losses onto other commercial carriers or finally optimize the cost structure. And that's something that I think one of our parent organizations in Sutter has done really well. I'm not going to hide from this. It creates a lot of tension internally. You are talking to people who have been in the industry for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They're service line leaders that are oriented towards always hitting their revenue numbers, always hitting their margin numbers. And you're telling them right now, it actually is good for business if we pull money out of the system. If we do less surgeries or do surgeries at outpatient centers instead of inpatient, you're going against the culture that so many of these folks were raised on. So there's always two sides to everything. But in my mind, I think that we're at a point now where you have to have a day of reckoning. And that only comes from financial incentives creating that gateway out. And I think that's what we're trying to create with this organization. There's a number of different ways that I could go here, but the the one thing that you said, which definitely is a question mark for me and, and, and certainly makes me think, no business entity, a for-profit entity or even a not-for-profit entity is going to do anything which is going to diminish their revenue or their margins. If I'm the employer in this mix, is this a robbing Peter to pay Paul situation that, okay, so we saved some money in the downstream, but then the administrative costs are correspondingly increased. And I see this with one backdrop. I have talked to EBCs, benefit consultants, and I have had several of them, and this is very anecdotally, say that the payvider option was actually the most expensive, <laughs> which is super counterintuitive. And granted, these were self-insured entities. But, and to a certain extent, this is a finger wag to the self-insured employers because no one was watching the hen house. And obviously, this employer had a broker and a TPA or an ASO who was totally taking advantage of them. So anyway, what was happening was the provider organization was just increasing their rates and bills. And because they also had a line into the insurance side of this, the gig was that this employer's premium prices kept increasing and increasing until it was wildly more expensive than other products in the marketplace for a narrow network. Just goes to show you not all narrow networks are comparable. Also, I guess we're not talking about a payvider by your definition. We're talking about a provider with some kind of something cooked up with a TPA or ASO. So to a certain extent, I could see this payvider play being a defensive play against competition, but I also could see it without proper guardrails being a very opportunistic one. Yeah, I don't know if those benefit consultants were sitting in Northern California because the ones that we work with my gosh, they make us raise like our standard of gain. But again, you're absolutely right. There are certainly organizations that are double dipping on this. And, and I think unfortunately, with healthcare being whatever, three point something trillion dollars now, it's always going to be that way. And you're going to have you know bad apples in the bunch. But overall, I think what it's doing for us is 
you look at the fully insured side of this, there is no faking it. If you do not perform on the fully insured side, you are then going to dip into your risk-based capital. When you look at what the provider has to put in, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars that they have to put up to backstop the risk on their fully insured product. So I always love to look at that and just say, are you eating your own cooking? Because if you are scared of that fully insured product, then you're absolutely right. You're probably playing the game. This kind of goes back to something that you had alluded to in an earlier conversation, or maybe it was an article or something that you've written, but you were talking about how it's fairly impossible to take money out of the system, either because there'd be the worry that people who are employed by the healthcare system would get let go and or because there isn't an IDN or health system or payvider who's going to voluntarily reduce their margins, I'd wager anyway. This all being said, then how do you take money out of the system? First, I I don't want to blur the legal lines of what we're talking about here. So mathematically, that is what's happening. But I think that literally speaking, you're not going to see somebody saying, all right, we're going to drop the price over here, increase the price over here, and we're going to screw everyone in our local community unless they take our product. Like, There's enough regulation where I know that's not happening, but it's almost like if the rates are fixed on your government lines of business for the most part, then where are you going to get additional revenue from? You're going to go to the things that you can negotiate. And so it only leaves so many channels to go down. If you can't take money out of the system because we're worried about people getting let go or because IDNs or health systems aren't inclined to voluntarily reduce their margins, as we talked about earlier, then what's your take on how you actually take money out of the system? Great question. I'm happy you asked it. And I think through taking money out of the system, I think maybe we've discussed this before, which is one in seven Americans is employed by the American healthcare sector. And so when we start thinking about reform at a local or national level, that is a sobering reality that we all just have to keep come to terms with, that you have a massive economic engine in the U.S. healthcare sector. And so when you start talking about taking money out and people losing jobs, I'm a bit of a contrarian in the fact that I do believe there are a number of people that are currently leeches in the status quo. They are middle men and women that should be eradicated from the current system. Now, I'm not talking about a system that's perfectly efficient and doesn't need anyone to optimize it or performance improve it. I'm talking about folks that make money off the arbitrage, people that make money off of the confusion that should not even exist. And when you're talking about how do you actually take money out, I think about things like unnecessary interventions, which can be easily eradicated with better incentives. I think about avoidable interventions, things that most anyone would agree, we would love to avoid these needs, these interventions, if we were only healthier as an individual or as a society. Those are fast ways to also take money out of the system and slow the growth. I don't think the goal should be to rip money out, just given the economic engine that is this workforce. But what I would say is that we should at least slow the growth down or attenuate it to a level that is below the inflation rate. The point right now that we're two, three xing it year over year compared to the inflation rate is, I think, just unsustainable and quite scary. We also have to talk about repurposing the workforce. Absolutely, we all are for a higher quality and more desirable outcomes. But I think we also have to think through 
maybe we don't need more people that have MPH, MHAs, or whatever other degree I've tried to get one point in my career. And we need to think about people that come from more traditional technology and product backgrounds as we think about the digital future of healthcare. And that also probably ties into the last point, which is we need to upskill our workforce. Right now, so much of the evolution is slowed purely because the current workforce does not know how to build it and how to get there. But that doesn't mean let's bring in these large tech giants to try to tell us what the better way is. It's more along the lines of let's allow these tech giants and Silicon Valley startups to partner with the behemoths, partner with the provider organizations and begin to blend that. All in all, I think you can take money out of the system by eradicating some of the people that are making money in you know ways that are not really creating tangible value. But I think a lot more relies upon us looking at what is avoidable or unnecessary and then also upskilling the current workforce to deliver the value and the experience that so many of the members are looking for now out of healthcare as they compare it to other digital avenues that they've been turned on to, the Amazons and Ubers of the world. I would agree with most of what you're saying there with the caveat that there has been a number of studies which have shown that actually the major driver of costs going up for American healthcare are prices going up for American healthcare. So you could get rid of all of the non-essential, inappropriate care in this country and you'll make a dent for sure. But, you know, what they say, it's the price is stupid. And it's been shown multiple times that just the prices that are paid for American healthcare are head and shoulders, sky rises <laughs> above the prices, actually their cost of services or the prices paid by other countries. Even if the additional incremental gets removed, there are plenty of EBCs across the country that say that simply by finding the right vendor, doing the right thing, you can cut healthcare costs by 20%. It's not cutting any services. It's just getting somebody charging a fair price to actually do the service. I don't think I don't think that's an opinion. That's just a fact, right? Of course, it's the unit cost year over year going up that's going to be a larger driver than a material increase in utilization. There's absolutely no question. I completely agree with it. But what I would say is we can go back and theoretically look at the math and go, okay, if every health system gives us a 10-point discount year over year for the next five years, can we make it more affordable? Absolutely. But would those health systems then be able to employ the amount of people that they do? And I think the answer is no, they wouldn't. I think I'm going more towards a sustainable path and not just one that is mathematically true. Because if we're going to say that the largest employer in any state is a health insurance company, a health system, or Walmart, which is in fact true, then what I have to look at it is and say, can a health system survive as the largest employer year over year if they give unit cost concessions year over year? And the answer is no. And so I do agree with the math, but what I disagree with is the fact that it's not plausible. It's For me, it's very difficult to see how that can survive. I love talking to benefit consultants because when you look at one employer in one geography, you can make it make sense. And if you extrapolate that, again, theoretically it works. But if you sit down with a health system CEO, like I have to every single week, and you talk about utilization trends, and that if the OR isn't to a certain capacity, they're gonna have to lay off a number of nurses and APPs and even physicians. You're talking about a mass issue in terms of the economics of our broader economy that far supersede a unit cost concession as a sustainable solution. But again, 
my two cents, but, but that, that's just kind of where I, I sit on the issue. Which is certainly interesting. And I have a feeling that listeners are going to have some comments. <laughs> 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 Jeb, is there anything that you want to add to this conversation? Take it easy on me with the comments. <laughs> uh, Jeb Dunkelberger, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.